is when I first became a believer in Christ, you know, back when the, uh, you know, the Nephilim walked the earth a long time ago, 1974. I, uh, I was like many new Christians. I was very uh, zealous, zealous, particularly zealous about, uh, about sharing the faith. And, uh, and, and, at that, and at that time, most of the arguments against, oh, against the, the existence of God or, or uh, against the reliability of the Christian Bible or just you know, against faith in the Christian gospel, they, they, they were oriented to the, uh, to the facts of the matter. They, they, they had to do, the objections that you heard uh, typically had to do with how Christianity was unscientific and ahistorical or ahistorical. And by ahistorical means it didn't happen. And uh, by uh, unscientific, you know, means couldn't have happened. You know, ahistorical just didn't happen. Unscientific couldn't possibly have happened. So uh, Christianity's critics uh, tended to camp on issues like the impossibility of miracles. You know, miracles are events that don't happen. You know, how can a how can a person believe in the, the miracles as they're presented in the Bible, or or uh, or uh, uh, and, and of course, the Apostle Paul, he freely admits that the whole Christian belief system stands or falls with the, you know, with the historicity of one miracle, right? The resurrection of Christ. He said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. We're of all men most to be pitied. So, so you know, so it was a big issue. It's important to defend the the concept of miracles. But that, but that's where they were. It was on facts of the on the facts of the matter, on the history. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? That would be another big one. Did he really rise from the dead physically, body, bodily? Occasionally, you'd hear, did Jesus Christ really exist as a historical person? And there are people that, that said, no, he didn't exist. In other words, he's like, a, he's like a William Tell or a Robin Hood or Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill. You know, he's a legendary uh, character, but, but he, didn't, he didn't really... Uh, didn't really exist, they said. So you'd be defending the historicity of the uh, of of Jesus, of Jesus of Nazareth, or are the are the gospel accounts uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are they reliable historical documents? Uh, did did the did the uh, claimed authors you know did Mark really write Mark? Did Matthew really write Matthew? And and, and by the way, and things have changed by the way, but. One of the reasons they changed it seems to me that these facts of history and and science, particularly history, they're all moving our way. They're all moving our way. You really can't find a serious historical scholar anywhere who would say who would say that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist, or that and, and the dating of the books are the 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 longer we go on the more they're moving back to uh, even scholars that don't believe they're saying yes Paul wrote that yes Matthew wrote that yes Mark wrote that and the and the dates are are moving back and so forth but but uh, but you know we, the 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 objections had to do with history and and facts uh, hasn't evolution disproved the Genesis count uh, evolution has disproved the Genesis account of the of the origin of the human race. Uh, isn't isn't religion or isn't Christian religion particularly an emotional crutch for emotionally weak and maybe intellectually 
you know, lacking people to, for them to face death. Uh, and those are the kind of, and what's the common theme, the, kind of the underlying theme of all those objections uh, were that Christians, you know, it was kind of, well, who, who's going to, you kind of had to be dumb a little bit, dumb. <laughs> in their views of the critics, to accept Christianity. It's not a very smart position. You know, you, you have to believe these things that uh, are unscientific or they're uh, not historical. And in our apologetics, which, which means our defense of the faith, uh, we tried to show, no, it's not dumb at all to, <laughs> to believe the gospel and to believe the Bible, you know, to believe in a historical Jesus who was literally God in human flesh, who claimed to be God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. You know, he, who, who, uh, who made these claims for himself, who, who performed these miracles to authenticate his message, who died on the cross, literally, physically died on the cross, literally, physically rose from the dead, presenting evidences for that. You know, this, it's, a, it's historically uh, reliable. It's, it's historically accurate to to believe these things. Uh, he ascended into heaven, he's coming, and, he, and we have his promise that he's coming back. We work to show that, that the Christian faith was a, uh, was a reasonable faith. It's, it's not, you can't take the faith out of it. We don't, t- we don't take, say that you don't need faith, but it's a, re- it's a reasonable faith. And in many cases, I, we set out to prove that Really, the unbelief was a less reasonable position than belief when it came to things like the resurrection of Christ. So, but something has uh, changed. It's like the spiritual landscape has changed. Uh, and those objections are still around. And, and, you know, if you're a believer in Christ and you are active at all in sharing your faith, I'll bet you've heard all of those objections that I've mentioned I bet you've heard every single one of them. You know, what about miracles? And, and uh, you know, is it Jesus really claimed to be God? You know, did he really rise from the dead? And all those things. Uh, and in most, most cases, they're good questions. Uh, ask honestly. And they, they're good answers to them, and we should know those answers. Uh, we should be able to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us, as Peter says. But the, but the spiritual landscape has changed since I first became a believer. And now the most common objections to the Christian faith don't have to do with matters of fact or history, but they have to do with matters of morality. And sometimes if it's the same objection that we heard 20, 30, 40 years ago, now there's a moral, there's a heavy moral component to it. Like how arrogant for you, arrogant, that's a moral charge, right? Right? How arrogant for you Christians to say that your religion, your religion, is the only one by which men can approach God successfully. Um, it isn't right. Don't want to talk much about if God provided a way. What he, this is the way He provided, <laughs> but it just isn't right for you to make that claim. It's arrogant. It's intolerant. Well, it's fine for you the way you is probably the way you were raised, but but what about the one who's never heard? He grew up a Muslim or he grew up a Hindu. 
And how easily you Christians consign so many millions to hell while reserving heaven for yourself and your family and your friends. It isn't right. That's the charge. It isn't right. You do the same thing with your holy book, the Bible. Every religion has its own version, they say. It's not really, by the way. <laughs> the Bible is set apart. But they say, it's, it's, you know, what makes yours so special? What makes yours better than the Quran or, or the Bhagavad Gita or the, or the, the Book of Mormon even? And, and besides, you hear today, today, haven't historical scholars proven that the books and letters that, go in, that got into the Bible were the ones favored by the mighty, the ones favored by the powerful? Weren't the books of the Bible, didn't they make it into the Bible because the powers that be wanted it that way, and they want it, you know, this is the one that keeps us in power, and we want to discount the rest. So it's all about, it's all about power. And it was always about power. But see, that's a moral argument, isn't it? It's a moral argument. And the God of the Bible, oh. How could a loving God consign anyone to hell forever and ever? It doesn't sound very loving. And his, uh, oh, <laughs> the God of the Bible, his sexual ethics. <laughs> if, if he's... If, he, if we're to understand God the way you Christians have got him figured, uh, he's not terribly affirming of the way he made people. He made them gay or straight, and then he's going to condemn them, if he's the way you have him figured, for being gay, for being the way God made them. It, it, isn't, it isn't right. It isn't right. You see, you see the charge is it's moral. It's not about facts. It's not about history. It's not about what happened. It's about what ought to have happened. <laughs> the God of the Old Testament, as if you could say the God of the Old Testament and not just the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, the God of Christianity, what kind of God chooses a people based on race? Well, what kind of God indeed other than a racist God, right? And this business, this business about God creating the man first. He creates the man, and then he makes the woman, but the she's to be a helper suitable to him? What year is it? <laughs> and, she, and, and he makes him from him? from him, from his side, derived from him, and then she's the first to sin. She's the first to sin. Sounds kind of sexist to me. But it's a moral charge. And if racist and sexist is enough, you can throw in genocidal. Kill them. Didn't your God say at one point, kill them all? And you hear the common thing. It's not science. It's not history. It's morality. And the problem is not so... Today, the problem is not so much that the, 
Christianity is not correct or right factually or historically, it's not that Christians must be a little bit dumb or at least simple and unsophisticated to embrace that God, that system. It, now it's not so much being uh, uh, not a very smart person, but not a very good person. And now you're now it's not to be believed because, and you're not to be believed because you're you're bad. You're bad. It's like getting a second from the you know the old joke. You know, get a second opinion. He says, "Okay, you're ugly too. You know, you're sick and you're ugly." <laughs> well, we got a second opinion. We're you know back in the back in the uh, last century we were not very smart. Now we're bad too. Uh, we live in an age that is absolutely obsessed with matters of morality. And all the arguments that we're having in the culture are moral in nature. And we, we, we live in a, in a time that's no less um, moralistic than the time of the Puritans. But the difference is, is that today's Puritans, <laughs> they're, uh, they're steeped in a morality that kind of flows backwards, uh, flows uphill uh, from... Not from God to man, but from fallen man in rebellion against God, and imposes itself uh, imposes itself a morality on God. Uh, it's a morality that's that has a that, that is enforced with a vengeance, and it, it, it has no there's no variation, no variation allowed, no compromise. Uh, and, and and let me let me just put it this way, in, in particularly if you're old enough, like like I, you can remember witnessing in the 1970s, 1980s. Have you have you noticed uh, like a ratcheting up in anger that's directed against uh, Christianity and Christians? Anger. Why? I laugh. Why is that? Well, when I think of this change, you know, from the you know from the from the objections of, of the faith based on science and history to the to the ones based on morality now, you know, you don't get angry at a, at a dumb person for thinking dumb things or saying dumb things. You might pity them, but you don't, you don't get angry at them. But you, we do get angry at a morally bad person. We do get angry about that. You want the, and everybody does, want the guilty to get what's coming to them. And all of these morally oriented objections to Christian faith are, are really their variations and their, their sub-questions, their sub-parts to one moral argument against God that is the granddaddy of them all. And it's sometimes called the problem of evil and sometimes it's called the problem of suffering uh, C.S. Lewis called it the problem of pain. He wrote a very good book uh, with that title, The Problem of Pain. And it goes something like this. If God is good, as the Bible says He is, right? And if He's all-powerful, as the Bible also says He is, then why... Is there evil? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering? 
Why is there evil in suffering at all? Because it seems self-evident that a good God who loves people would not want them to suffer. And if he, if he wants to put an, an end to evil, but he can't do it, then that all-powerful God that the Bible talks about, he doesn't exist. And if he could put it, if he is powerful, if he could put an end to all evil and suffering, but he doesn't want to, then that loving God, then that good God the Bible talks about, he can't exist. The modern atheists like... Uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, we kind of have this new breed of, of almost missionary atheism, you know, uh, a zealous atheism. They, they say that science is the cornerstone of their atheism, but I don't think so. It's morality, and really, it's the anger that gives it away. <laughs> it's what they get really wound up about that gives it away. They, they, they're just full of moral indignation and you know, ridicule about a God who would allow so much suffering in the world. And really, people like you who would believe in that God, who would embrace that God. Sam Harris, in his book titled Letter to a Christian Nathan, N- Nation, uh, which he wrote, this is why he say he wrote it, quote, to demolish the intellectual and moral pretensions of Christianity. Well, they're even there, intellectual and moral. But he really gets wound up about the moral. He, he argues that, here's his restatement of it, either God can do nothing to stop moral evil, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. Therefore, God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. And, and, uh, and if you can't hear the snark in this last statement, you know, you're not listening carefully. Take your pick and choose wisely. <laughs> then he goes on to congratulate himself on the, really, the unassailability of his reasoning, announcing that the problem of vindicating an omnipotent, it means all-powerful, an omniscient, knows everything, God in the face of evil is insurmountable. In other words, there's nothing you can, there's nothing can be done with that argument. It's 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 inescapable. God is either impotent or he's evil. Could put an end to evil but doesn't want to, or he's imaginary. Richard Dawkins is a, another of the kind of the new breed of uh, atheist missionaries, and he he flatters himself that science it's science that makes Christianity impossible. But what's he get wound up about? It's the morality. He says, for example, he says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent 
bully. <laughs> well, almost everybody who floats this problem of evil uh, as the just the the Mac Daddy of all objections to Christian faith, it, it everybody seems like they, they were the first to think of it. Uh, but uh, there's nothing new under the sun. C.S. Lewis in 1940, in The Problem of Pain, in that book, he stated the problem this way. He said, and see if it sounds familiar. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Sound familiar? <laughs> 1940. And, and then he goes on to say, this sounds familiar too, he goes on to say, it must be admitted at the outset that the po if the popular meanings attached to these words, which mean good and power and happiness, are the best or the only possible meanings, then the argument is unanswerable. Well, there wasn't anything new under the sun in 1940 either. And in 1776, the skeptic philosopher David Hume, he asked a series of questions about God, see if these sound familiar. Is he willing to prevent evil? Ask questions about God. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Why is there any misery at all in the world? Not by chance, surely. From some cause then. Is it from the intention of the deity? but he's perfectly benevolent. Is it contrary to his intention? But he's almighty. Nothing can shake, and listen to this last statement, nothing can shake the solidity of this reasoning. So short, so clear, so decisive. Where it is again, there's no getting around this argument. There's nothing to be said about it. They laid out the, it's amazing how they, Every few hundred years, they lay out this, or every 10, or 20, 30, 50, this argument's laid out by someone who, who thinks they thought of it. Uh, they state it almost exactly the same, and then they congratulate themselves on the brilliance and the unassailability, the unanswerability of this argument. Uh, the English theologian John Stott, Anglican, died 2011, he wrote in the 80s, he said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution of suffering, its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and his love. American theologian uh, and philosopher uh, by the name of Roger Na Ronald Nash, he, he wrote about the same time, objections to theism, and theism is just simple belief in God, uh, not necessarily Christianity, but theism. If you believe in God, you're theist. Objections to theism come and go, but every philosopher I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. So, okay, we've been warned. This is a serious argument against the existence of God, at least the omnipotent, omniscient, good and loving God we read about in the Bible 
And if you don't believe it, just ask someone who's got the objection. They say, this is, man, this is un, unassailable, they say. It's like they say, try this one on Christian. You know, you can't answer it. There's no answer to it. And even the Christian theologians say, this is a tough one. <laughs> this is a tough one. You better gird up your loins before, you know, if you're going to answer this, this uh, problem. And, and in fact, this problem of evil is such a big deal. There, it has its own word for it. It's called theodicy. You ever heard of the term theodicy? It has its own word. It's the, theodicy. Webster defines theodicy as the defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. I don't know of any other issue, I don't know of any other apologetic issue that has its own name, theodicy. And this one does. But before we run up the right flag, um, we should remember our marching orders, you know, our combat orders, when it comes to, quote, arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you at least recognize it as something you read in the Bible? Because you have. Here it is in a little more context. David put up the uh, verse for us. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now in our therapeutic age, you can leave up for a few minutes, I'll tell you when to take it down. In, in our therapeutic age, uh, lots of people read uh, take every thought captive and they, they think kind of automatically that, that this is about controlling the thoughts uh, of our own mind. Uh, people think that. They read this verse, that verse right there, and they think that taking every thought captive, that's about controlling my own thoughts. See, I've got these troublesome thoughts that, that won't go away, you know, temptations and lusts or hatreds, resentments, or I have, con I have trouble concentrating in prayer or, or worship or Bible readings. And, you know, I'm trying to read my Bible, trying to pray, and then all of a sudden my thoughts run off and they're at the golf course, you know, or they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're at the, in the carpool or they're thinking about, they're thinking about what somebody said, you know, you know how do my thoughts get over there? So we want to take every thought captive. The, the problem is, that's not what it's about at all. It isn't about controlling your own thoughts. There's nothing there that's about controlling your own thoughts. What it is it? It's about strongholds of unbelief that people are caught in. It's about the arguments that are and lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. They're about these arguments that people would make so that people won't seek to know God because you can't know them. What could, be lofty, what could be a loftier opinion or a loftier uh, argument raised up against the knowledge of God than the one that says there's no point in trying to know God because He doesn't exist. And we know He doesn't exist because evil exists. He can't exist. And there's no getting around this argument. What are we supposed to do with that? 
We're supposed to destroy them. <laughs> Not people, but the argument. And we're not dependent just on our arguments. We're not dependent on, on any of the earthly strategies. Why? Because we bring divine resources to it. So we do things like pray for them. That God would open, the, uh, open their eyes. That the Spirit would convict. We do things like love them into the kingdom like I was, I say sometimes. But we're to, we're to take every thought captive. It's not my own thoughts that we're talking about being, your, your own thoughts, it's not that. No, it's the one who is steeped in this argument against the possibility of knowing God. That's the what we're to take captive. That's the argument we're to destroy. You can take it down. And I wanted to talk with you about how to do that. Uh, especially on an apologetic level when it comes to this really formidable problem of evil. And I, and I wanted to say before you, and I'm not, I'm not going to really talk about them today. I'm going to save it for an, another time when we're, we're going to come back to this very soon. But I'm going to lay it out for you right now. And, and three things not to do and three things to do <laughs> when we are, when we are ha as the sermon title says, hammering away at this uh, stronghold of atheism, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, problem of evil. And I, I don't even know if I can... I'm going to state all six, but I'm not going to explain... Uh, I'm going to touch on one of them to end. But I wanted to state them just so you see that we're, where we're going. I've got three don'ts, three please don'ts, <laughs> and three things to do. Here's, here's the first of the, of the please don't. Don't argue, please don't argue for the necessity of evil for us to fully appreciate good. Please don't do that. <laughs> well, I want to I explain this really more fully you know, soon to, to you all. But don't argue for the necessity of evil. Evil is not necessary. Don't, don't say, yeah, but would we really know good if we didn't have evil? No. Evil, you know, there are, there are religious systems, I almost can't help it, can I? There are religious systems in which evil and God, you know, God and some counterpart are set up as equals. The yin and yang of Taoism, you know, the, the, equal, the good and evil are equal forces. That's not the Christian system at all. Stronger is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's, God is infinitely more powerful than evil. He doesn't have a rival. And it is not necessary for you to, to uh, uh, experience evil to appreciate good. You're going to enjoy a good meal here in a few minutes maybe. Would it be helpful if you had a few swallows of dirt before you? Would you appreciate the meal better? You know? You might have a nice nap this afternoon. What a slice of heaven that'll be. Well, how about a nice poke in the eye with a sharp stick beforehand? Would that make it better? It's silly. Please don't argue for the necessity of evil for us to appreciate good. Second, please don't argue that ultimately evil is insignificant or maybe even good in some way because eventually God will turn evil to some good justifying purpose. Don't do that. 
Well, we have the verse. It says, God caused all things to work together for good of those, you know, who's called according to his purpose. But if you absolutize that and say, that's the explanation every single time, oh, don't invite that calculation. Don't invite that calculation. You end up, you, you end up sowing, seed, sowing seeds of hatred against God. You can even do it in yourself. You try to tell yourself that God, let's say, took my loved one away to teach me fill in the blank. There's no fill in the blank that makes it worth it. Third, please don't compromise the omnipotence and omniscience or omniscience of God just to escape the logical pincers of this problem of evil. Because some do. I don't think anybody here would. But some would say, just to escape it, they would say, okay, well maybe he's not omniscient. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's... There are, there are, there are theologians that, that consider themselves evangelical theologians who are willing to say today that... Uh, God's learning too. He's doing the best he can with what he's got, and he's taking a chance on you. But he doesn't know what's going to happen. So can't, he can't be blamed for what does happen. Don't do that. And there are three positives, three positives, three things to do, to say, when combating the problem of evil and suffering. Do emphasize the importance of human choice in being in relation with with human beings being in relationship with God. That is absolutely key. Because God could have made robots who would never sin, but He made people, and He desires to be in relationship with them. And relationship requires choice. And choice requires consequences. It's a key. We'll explain it more. But that's a key to doing battle with this stronghold. Do emphasize the biblical promise that God will one day confine evil, freeing His creation from all evil, and his people from all suffering. How the Bible ends is crucial in answering this objection. Because how, 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 does, how does it end? I mean, not, not the, well, really, the last chapters, but these. Behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of places with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, as in grieving, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In other words, the problem of evil will be resolved. And, and, and thirdly, do challenge the atheist to deal with his own, with the problem of evil in his own belief system. 
for they are manifold and serious, we might even say insurmountable. To close today, I, I want to send you home with like at least one bullet in your pocket, you know. <clears throat> so I, I want to touch just a little bit more on one of those do's, one of those two do's. It's the second one. It's the middle one. It's the fact that God promises to bring suffering and evil to an end. We, we, uh, we concluded our observance of the Lord's Supper, as we usually do. We quote uh, Paul from 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's the implication of that last phrase, until he comes? When the Lord returns, things are going to be different. It's going to be a lot different. Because when he comes, he's coming as righteous judge of all mankind, and he's going to set everything right. He's going to settle all accounts. He's going to resolve the problem of evil. He's going to resolve it. Paul preached to the philosophers at Athens. And by the way, they would have known that Epicurus. The, the, uh, all Athens, all the, the amateurs, philosophers at Athens, Acts chapter 17, they would have heard of this Epicurus who said, you know, if there is a God, whence evil? He says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day, a, a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And if it weren't for this promise, if it weren't for the promise of the, of the Bible, the promise of Jesus himself, the promise of all the apostles, that, that, that Jesus is coming back and going to bring this problem of evil to a resolution and make all things right, if it weren't for that promise, then the Bible really would have no ultimate answer for the problem of evil. But remember the syllogism, or the, you know, the syllogism, they say, just the, uh, the if-then statement. If God is good, he would want to end all evil and suffering. If he's all-powerful, he could bring an end to evil and suffering. Nevertheless, evil and suffering do exist, and the lofty opinion raised up to, for, against God, the knowledge of God, it offers this as a conclusion. Therefore, an omnipotent, omniscient, good God does not exist. But the promise of Christ's return, it says, no, let's put a different conclusion on it. If, if God is good, he would want to end suffering. If he's powerful, he could end suffering. Nevertheless, suffering is not ended. Therefore, God will in the future. He must in the future bring an end to evil and suffering. Why? Because he's good and because he's loving, because he's powerful. He will. Then the complaint is, then the complaint is, it can only be, you're just kicking the can down the road. You're just kicking the can down the road. Why hasn't he done it yet? And you know, the Bible has an answer for that. Why hasn't he done it yet? The Bible gives an answer. And it's grounded, guess what? It's grounded in God's goodness. It's grounded in God's loving nature. It's grounded in God's uh, benevolence. It's grounded in His grace. And, uh, and just, to see, just to go to the chase on it, Second Peter 3, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Lord is going to resolve what the new atheists call God's problem of evil. But he hasn't so far because he is good, he's gracious, he's kind, he's merciful, and he's giving all those who are outside of Christ ample opportunity to resolve their problem of evil. What's that? The problem of evil in every heart. Because if God put an end to all evil in the world right now, apart from Christ, I wouldn't enter the next phase. And you wouldn't either. And nobody would. And Richard Dawkins wouldn't. And Sam Harris wouldn't. And the person who brings up this objection to you at work or at school wouldn't. Apart from a claim on the body and blood of Christ. Believe in Him. Place your trust in Him as Savior because he is coming as judge and will make all wrongs right. We'll set things right. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that the door of salvation remains open. Your patience with sinners astounds us. Uh, your grace towards sinners humbles us. And the fact of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead moves us to pray for all who remain outside of Christ. For we know we, we are no better than any and it's owing to nothing in us that we've been given the gift of saving faith and some others have not. So we ask that you would do for them what you did for us and we pledge to do for them what somebody did for us, to pray for saving faith, to love us as the Father loves, to speak boldly and winsomely, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Help us to do real spiritual battle against every lofty and proud opinion raised up against the knowledge of God that more would know you for their eternal blessing and your everlasting glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.